Okay, we're recording just so you know. Hi. Hi, Leah. Hi, Hamish. Hi, Hi. Camille. Hi. Oh, hang on, I don't have any volume on. Okay, Leah. Oh, you're all on mute anyway, so it doesn't really matter if my volume is on. Um, get yourselves off mute. How are you going? Good. 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 Yeah. Whoever's on a messaging app, turn that off. <laughs> We've just got Jim and yeah, today. It's pretty cold. Gemma, did you just mute to yourself? Yeah, I did mute myself. Super. Um, we might just wait one more minute and see if anyone else comes. I've had a few apologies from people. But those of you who are um, going to listen to this, great. Those of you who are not going to listen to this and never hear this, it's a real shame because this is really a great week in my view. Such is life. Should we just get going? 10.02? Yep. All right. Um, this is our last week. So does anyone have any questions about the essay? Nope. You're all good. Super. Well, that's easy. All right, let's get going then. So post-humanism. I actually was just saying to Gemma that I really love this week and I read Jane Bennett again last night. Like obviously I've read her work several times, but I do just really, really, um, I really enjoy it. I feel like it expands my thinking and my sensibilities beyond just kind of theory and out into the way I am out in the world. And I really like that. Um, so I hope you guys feel like that too. I feel like I'm missing something but we are recording. Maybe it's because we didn't fart around for an hour with the technology. We're not missing anything else. Okay. All right. We'll get moving then. So um, this week, the lecture has five parts. Um, the first part is a bit of a recap of where we've come from over the course of the unit and how we've ended up here at the question of post-humanism. The second part asks the question why we need a post-humanism, if we need it, and what it is. And then in the third part, I'm going to talk about Bennett. Um, oh, this isn't really. Occasionally it captures it. I can turn off the, um, I'm not at home. My messy kitchen bench is not behind me, so I can uh, have a normal background. Okay. Bennett, that's what I wanted to show you. Her book, Vibrant Matter. Talk about her in the third part of the lecture. And then in the fourth part, if we've got time, but I'm happy to also scrap the fourth part and just have a more general discussion. And that probably would be my preference, in fact. But um, we can talk about some of the problems, kind of political and social problems that post-humanists can give insight um, to. And then in the fifth part, if we've got time, we'll recap. And then I'm going to conclude by reading you a story. Because what better way to conclude a unit? Oh, speaking of messaging apps. Let me close my inbox. Thank you. Nothing good can come of that. Okay. So um, in this lecture, I'm going to largely make an argument for post-humanism, right? Um, not necessarily because I think that you have to adopt a post-humanist perspective, 
but because I think as we discussed way back in week two, sometimes or usually it's easier to make sense of a theoretical tradition if you go with it to begin with. Um, and for most of you, this will be your first encounter with post-humanist theory. Have any of you worked with any post-human theory before? A little bit. Yeah. Who have you worked with or what kind of what kinds of ideas? Um, we looked at it in a unit last year, um, but I feel like it was a very different yeah. take on it. It was more sort of looking at um, like land and nature and like humans not being superior over that and kind of going back to like a lot of um you know like indigenous indigenous cultures yeah um sort of looking at um I think there was like a river in New Zealand um that had been like granted human rights and then like looking at what that meant and like what that human status was um so yeah it was sort of less on the technology aspect and wasn't really looking at power as such yeah yeah so post-humanism is a really broad church and I'm going to talk about that and I actually think there is some resonance between Bennett and those indigenous schools of thought and I am a bit disappointed in her that she hasn't really engaged in those in her book very much but um but yeah it's a really broad church but so yeah just to kind of clarify we're going to go with it today um if you were to come back to it again and start to use it you would need to try to be a bit more critical I think Um, there are shortcomings to this school of thought Um, but for the purposes of today for sort of understanding what it might offer us as we think about power we're going to kind of largely go along with it Um, but I don't want you to take that as the kind of resounding endorsement of everything every post-humanist has to say. Okay so the first part of the lecture where we've come from can someone recap for me? Who who have we studied? Who have we looked at? Gemma? Okay. Would you like an exhaustive list? Yes. Of Give me an exhaustive list. Okay. Let's see if I can remember. Machiavelli, Hart, Foucault. Yep. You missed Arendt, one. Yep. Also I missed. Yeah. Ooh, is it bad? I can't remember the names of the speakers. The speakers. The theorists. From the last group. No, that's not bad. Rosalind Gill. Hey, Andrew. Those are the ones I like. Yeah. Like, I remember the content of them. Yeah. Yeah. Who did we study in that week? I was sick and I posted in my old lecture. Bannon? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So uh, Machiavelli, Marx, Arendt, Foucault, Fanon, Gill. They all... They're, very, they're all very different theorists. And you, as we've discussed, there's reasons why I've chosen them. Um, Machiavelli gave us a pretty conventional sort of intuitive common sense understanding of power as a commodity and at zero sum. Marx taught us that power is relational in a kind of structural sense and that it is also material. Arendt gave us a normative theory of power, how power, how we ought to think about power and how power ought to be exercised. Foucault kind of threw everything up in the air and drew our attention to the micro forms of power that um, go to work on us kind of day to day. Um, Fanon rejected, uh, well, Fanon gave us a new perspective on on power in the sense of it's kind of, um, it's embodied and what he called psycho-affective dimension, meaning that it kind of goes to work on our bodies, through our bodies, and particularly through race. 
and that it has an effect. In some ways, it's kind of resonant with Foucault. Foucault talked about subjectivity, but Fanon talked about the psyche and our emotional states and how power can go to work on those. And then um, Gill and the other critics of post-feminism, Leah, that we talked about last week, they um, gave us another kind of um, a, a kind of critical way of looking at the idea of empowerment and drawing on Foucault um, a kind of critical lens through which we can understand some of the contemporary discourses around power. What do they all have in common? They're all about humans. Correct. That's exactly right. So power for all of these theorists is something that affects humans and something that, that is brought into being or possessed by humans. So power affects humans and it's brought into being by humans for most of them or for Machiavelli, it's possessed by a human or humans. Even for those who had a material bent, so that would be Marx, obviously, in his theory of historical materialism, and also to a certain extent Fanon and his emphasis on embodiment. Um, even then, their central concern is fundamentally human one, and they see power as operating fundamentally on and through humans. And so most of our discussion has been around how power, particularly after Machiavelli, how power shapes our subjectivities. Right, how it shapes who we are, how it shapes the opportunities that we have, how it shapes the opportunities even to resist, right, or to be free. So the only serious materialist that we've studied so far is Marx, right? So let's have a little recap of what materialism was for him. So materialism, what's usually called new materialism and post-humanism, those terms are sometimes used interchangeably. Right, so they're sort of um, post-humanism and new materialism are both about looking beyond the human as a category. So if Marx was our materialist, he was a materialist in the sense that he thought not that our ideas make the world, but that the world makes our ideas. Does that ring a bell for people? Was nodding. So we talked about how he was different from or his, his thought was a departure from German idealism that was dominant at the time that he was living. So that German idealism was um, most prevalent in Hegel. It was not idealism as in an ideal kind of utopia, but idealism as in there is no real material world out there. There's only our perception of it. It's kind of gross oversimplification, but you get the idea. Whereas Marx said, no, there is, there is a material world and it actually affects us. We don't have mastery in some ways. We don't have mastery over the world. It actually, it shapes who we are. So our ideas of progress and enlightenment and so on that were associated with the French Revolution and the Industrial Revolution at the time that he was living, he says they arose as a result of um, changes in the mode of production, right, from feudalism to um, capitalism. So that's the sense in which Marx was a materialist. He called his method historical materialism, 
right? And his method for understanding the world was to look at the changes in the mode of production over time. And if we understood those material changes, then we would understand the world where we're at, where we've come from and where we might go. So that is sometimes referred to as the old materialism. And you might've read Bennett refers to it. Um, lots of other people refer to it. Um, it is the idea um, that, yeah, that the material world is of some significance. But for Marx, it was still primarily of significance for humans. And he still maintained a distinction between human agency and matter as lacking agency. I'm just pausing because it looks like you guys are writing. Okay. So the second part of the lecture then, why do we need a new materialism or a post-humanism and what exactly would that be? So um, I'm going to give you three reasons why post-humanists argue that this is the direction that we need to take in the study of the social world. The first is a really simple one right? It's a really simple reason. Don't overthink this one. It's simply that matter has a massive impact on our lives, right? Who woke up and felt cold this morning? Yeah. Who woke up and felt hot because their cat was on them and they left the heater on too high? Right. Um, who, um, how did you get here, Gemma? Right, material object, right? Um, who had coffee that helped them, like, come to life? Yeah. So all of these things, like, if you think about from the moment you woke up until now, even just this kind of few hours this morning or five minutes possibly for some of you, but hopefully not, that you, um, all of the different ways in which matter, like material objects, have influenced your life and we routinely overlook them. So I want to read you a paragraph from a book called New Materialisms. It's an edited book by Diana Cool and Samantha Frost. Um, I meant to bring it in and I forgot it, so I had to find it and online and print that first page. Uh, it's a great book if you're interested in this stuff. It's like a good, um, the introduction is a good overview of post-humanism and then it's got myriad different chapters on, yeah, like on land and water and this kind of Indigenous perspectives on robots and um and other forms of technology, artificial intelligence, screens, etc., um, on waste and the environment. Like there's a lot of different angles that posthumanists take. So it's a really nice kind of menu um, of the, you know, turn, the posthuman turn, we tend to call it. So they say, page one, opening paragraph, as human beings, we inhabit an ineluctably material world. We live our everyday lives surrounded by and immersed in matter. We are ourselves composed of matter. We experience its restlessness and intransigence, even as we reconfigure and consume it. At every turn, we encounter physical objects fashioned by human design, all those ones that we're using right now, the table, the chair, the computer, um, and endure natural forces whose imperatives structure our daily routines for survival, surviving the cold, a few of us 
would have felt very comfortable sleeping outside last night, right? Our existence depends from one moment to the next on myriad microorganisms and diverse higher species, on our own hazily understood bodily and cellular reactions, and on pitiless cosmic motions, on the material artifacts and natural stuff that populate our environment, as well as on socioeconomic structures that produce and reproduce the conditions of our everyday lives. We've paid a lot of attention to that last one, right? Socioeconomic structures that produce the conditions of our lives. But so far, we've paid very little to the other things that they're talking about here. In light of this massive materiality, how could we be anything other than materialist? How could we ignore the power of matter and the ways it materializes in our ordinary experiences? And how can we fail to acknowledge the primacy of matter in our theories? Which is what we mostly do, we mostly ignore it. So just quickly, um, near the beginning of the quote, there was something about matter being restless. Um, I was wondering what that meant. Yeah, we experience its restlessness and intransigence even as we reconfigure and consume it. So that was the sentence. What do you think it means? I'm trying to work it out because matter um, generally rests. I mean, it doesn't move around. Um, 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 I was trying to work out what it means. It, it, it could be restless in the sense that we keep on trying to change things and improve it and move it, but then then it is not restless. We're uh, not restless, that, that would mean. So, so most, I'm, I'm, most humanists would argue that it is restless. And I'll talk more about that. Yeah. But it is that feeling that like, hang on, whoa, what? That is the right feeling to be having at this point, right? Like what is their argument about the restlessness of this table in front of me, for example, right? So keep that in mind. It's a really good question. We're going to get into it. Okay. So that's their first reason, right? Is matter has this impact on us that in social theories we ignore, even though every minute of every day it is impacting on what we do, who we are, what opportunities are available to us. So the second reason is that the old materialisms, the Marxist kind, they really died out with the cultural turn, what's called the cultural turn. So you'll notice from around a rent onwards, like from the mid-20th century, um, scholars in philosophy theory, political theory, social theory um, turned to language and particularly to discourse to understand the social world, right? And we became deeply obsessed with representation and language. Um, Foucault is a kind of, you know, typical example here. Even though his idea of discourse wasn't limited to language, it also included practice, was very much kind of human practices, right? And it wasn't, he didn't pay a lot of attention to materiality. There were episodes in his work where he talked about materiality when he talked about the panopticon, for example, or when he talks about docile bodies and like our bodies as being um, one of the tools through which we are subjected to power. But he doesn't really elaborate on the significance of those material things in his theory, it's sort of still the center of gravity in the way he thinks is still language and meaning, right? Representation. Um, and so materials will say that a lot of stuff got pushed to the background when we took that turn. And then the third reason is not just that we've neglected the materialism that Marx called our attention to, but that even that is not enough, 
so for Marx, he was pretty much only interested in the in the mode of production and the means of production. He didn't have a lot to say about other forms of materiality. Famously, Gemma, he ignored bodies, right, and the difference between women's bodies and men's bodies and their um, how they get affected by capitalism. They also argue that um, it's not just about the significance of matter, right? It's not just about how important it is. That's part of it. It affects us all the time. We need to be more attentive. It's not only about that. It's also not only about the relationship between cause and effect where matter can cause something to happen. An earthquake, for example, can cause a humanitarian catastrophe. It is about that, but it's not only about that, right? So it is about means of production. That's one thing. It is about the significance of matter. That's one thing. It's about the way in which matter can cause particular effects. That's one thing. But they say it's more than those things. And this comes to your point, Rachmiel. It is, according to Cool and Frost, page two, the claim quote, that foregrounding material factors and reconfiguring our very understanding of matter are prerequisites for any plausible account of coexistence and its conditions in the 21st century. Right, so foregrounding material factors, like, yes, that fits with all the things we've just talked about, that matter is important, that it causes effects, etc. We have to do that, but we also have to reconfigure our very understanding of matter. What counts as matter? What is the nature of matter? <coughs> so what they're doing here is questioning the very distinction between human and nature or human and inorganic matter. This idea that Rachmiel's pointed to that human can move things around humans can make objects restless by shoving them around pushing them around doing stuff to them they're saying actually new materials don't necessarily hold that binary and Bennett certainly doesn't right so there are two like really foundational assumptions of western ontology that get thrown up in the air by this suggestion one of them is the Cartesian idea of the subject. So when I say the Cartesian idea, I'm referring to Descartes, who famously said... I think, therefore I am. Correct. So that was a kind of enlightenment idea that humans, because we think, we are like essentially different from every other thing. Right, that that is what makes us different. Our cognition or our subjectivity or our soul kind of cashes out in different ways depending on your philosophical orientation, that that is what makes us different, other and superior to animals, to nature, to inorganic matter, tables, metals, buses, Right, so that's one idea that is thrown up here. Is it really the case that thinking makes us fundamentally and essentially different? And the second thing, this comes directly 
to your point, Rachmiel. So Newton, what? who was Newton? What happened to him under a tree? An apple fell. Yes. So he was sitting under a tree, an apple fell. He went, oh, gravity. And this idea that um, objects or matter only move when acted upon, that's also thrown up in the air here. So when you say it doesn't make sense to me that matter would be restless, that's your assumption, right, that objects can only do stuff when we do stuff to them. And that was kind of fundamental Newtonian physics. Don't ask me any questions about that. That's really not my area and I will not be able to answer them. But the point is Descartes and Newton, like these, these people who formed the foundation of like post-enlightenment ontology in the Western world. And everything that they thought is thrown up in the air by some of the suggestions that new materialists and post-humanists are making. So firstly, maybe we're not so different from matter or maybe the distinction is not as sharp. It's not, most of them will, no one's really suggesting that we're not different, but that maybe the distinction is not as sharp as it's made out to be. And also this other idea that matter, including inorganic matter. So it's easy for me to imagine, for example, that my horse would throw me off her back, right? Like that is a, that is a, an object that is different from a human that we can pretty readily accept is able to do things. She's able to do things on her own without me doing anything to her. But the idea that the table might do something, it's a much more difficult idea to accept, right? So we're going to unpack that. Okay, so what is post-humanism then? I'm going to give you some features so I'm not defining, you might have said quite a few of you I've said at various points, don't, at, when we're working with theory at this level, we sort of stop defining things because the definition is kind of very fixed and final and usually quite constrained. What we want to do instead is conceptualise. It's more fluid and it's more kind of rich and complex. Um, and as I said earlier, and as Hamish noted, Posthumanism is a broad church and there's disagreement amongst posthumanists. There's different emphases and thrusts and trends compared to if, if you're studying cyborgs, compared to if you're talking about, um, you know, giving nature um, subjectivity under law, compared to if you're talking about caring for country, you know, like there's a lot of, or you're talking about bodies and illnesses, like it is a really broad church. But the, some things that they kind of all have in common are, Number one, an insistence on becoming rather than being. It's a bit of a brain bender. And it is probably easiest to grasp if you think about this as a, like a style of thinking that is kind of open, less fixed, more open. So it comes from, among other people, Deleuze, another French, um, one of these sort of pan-disciplinary French thinkers. I've always found his work super difficult, to be honest, but um, the idea of becoming is this idea that um, we are never finished, right? We're always in a state of becoming the next thing that we're going to be, that there's no end point even right for this book, right, this physical book, it appears like it's an end point. It's a finished book. 
It's probably not going to change shape, right? But even this book is not really finished. It will decompose at some point, right? Probably not in my lifetime, although I do have a silverfish problem in my house, so maybe it will. But the silverfish can act on it. If I left it outside, it would do that thing where the paper starts to become brittle, you know, and then it's kind of um, starts to get a bit kind of hard and easier to tear and thins out. If I get it wet, different things will happen to it. This book, the argument goes, is constantly working to keep itself in this form. But it will not be in this form forever, right? There are some things like aluminium foil, for example, that are likely to keep themselves in that form for a very, 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 very long time. There are other things like fruit that are going to decompose much faster, but nothing is ever finished. No matter is ever completely finished. And so that's what it means to put this emphasis on becoming rather than being, because it forces your attention, it pushes your attention towards what is going on in order for this book to be a book in order for this table to be a table instead of just taking for granted that it is what it is. Cool and Frost refer to it as um, processes of materialization. That everything that is material, everything that is matter is in the midst of a process of becoming that way. Does that make sense? And that might be a little bit, Rachmiel, that idea of restlessness. Something is happening here. It's hard to discern, particularly with some of those objects like aluminium foil that last a long time. But there is always something going on. It's never simply being. So that's the first feature, an emphasis on becoming rather than being. The second feature is that posthumanists don't usually work in binaries and oppositions. And this is not a new idea for you guys either, right? Like we've talked about this several times over the course of the unit. Even last week when we were talking about post-human, uh, sorry, post-feminism, feminism and anti-feminism are not necessarily always as opposite as the words would suggest, right? So post-humanists take that sort of style of thinking, moving away from oppositions and binaries um, pretty far. They're not really trying to make a distinction between matter and non-matter or between living and dead. Right? It's a much, much, much more kind of fluid, like maybe you could think about it as a spectrum or perhaps like a constellation, but not a, not a binary. So I'll give you another nice quote from Cool and Frost from page nine that captures this. They say, materiality is always something more than mere, quote unquote, mere matter. It is an excess, force, vitality, relationality or difference that renders matter active, self-creative, productive and unpredictable. I'll read it again. Matter is an excess, a force, vitality, relationality, or difference 
right? So if we come back to the book, the physical object of the book, right? There is a force at work here in keeping this book a book. It's not just simply existing as a book. It is relational in the sense that the book is not this paper, right? And that is what makes it different. It is different from the other things around it. It's different from the air. It's different from the table. It has taken on this particular form and is constantly, in a way, working to maintain that form. And that is what makes it active, self-creative, productive and unpredictable. All in degrees, right? So water can be very unpredictable, right? A book is less unpredictable, right? So there's, there's you have to sort of appreciate this stuff in degrees. They're not making like radically absurd claims that the book might grow legs and walk out of the room. But they're encouraging us to be attentive to possibilities that do exist in matter and what it can do. And in some cases, those possibilities are rich and complex and potentially dramatic. How do you feel about that? Um, I'm getting the sense from all of this that um, it's chipping away or purposely ignoring the distinction as well between natural sciences and social sciences as well. Correct. Definitely. And a big field of posthumanism is in the study of science, actually, or science and society, science and technology studies, STS, sometimes called. That is a, a big field. There's quite a famous book, I can't remember the name of it, by Anne-Marie Mole about atherosclerosis, which is a like a bone disease. And she um, it's an ethnography of the medical profession working on this disease. And she talks about the materiality of all these different things and how it comes to be a disease. But actually she kind of breaks it down to all of the different things that come together to make it into a disease. It could have been some other thing. Um, and she, that's an example of that breakdown between social and natural sciences. Yeah. That's the, that's the same as the um, the mosquito, can the mosquito speak reading, which is very enjoyable. Um, yeah. Also, the other um, uh, observation I made already is that there's uh, obviously going to be a lot of overlap between this and um, transhumanism as well. Um, the uh, the ideas of um, of um, for example. Um, uh, basically automating the world uh, as much as possible so that um, we can transcend sort of being human. So for example, if all work was automated, then no one would have to work and et cetera, et cetera. Um, or eventually becoming, you know, uh, a mix between uh, robots and humans at the same time. All this sort of ties together with that as well. Um, Cause I, I've um, just randomly, I've seen that that's, um, a sort of uh, theories of transhumanism are gaining more and more um, airtime, I suppose. Yeah, yeah. Transhumanism would be a branch of posthuman theory, but I think 
think um, it would also be a really good example of where there's disagreement. I, I don't know anything about it really, but it strikes me as an example of where there could be a lot of disagreement among post-humanists um, about, you know, what is the kind of ethical thing to do with this new understanding of, of the difference or the lack of difference between human and matter. Um, yeah, it's a good example. Okay, so I want to move on then and talk about if this is what posthumanism is, then what are the implications for our understanding of power and our understanding of agency, right? Because particularly the latter is it can be quite disconcerting when you first read this stuff because you're like, ah, oh, okay, if matter has agency and I also have agency, if the table has agency and I also have agency, what is agency supposed to mean in that context? How are we supposed to hold people accountable for, you know, their actions? Um, how am I supposed to exercise freedom? Like these are some of the questions that come to mind when you start to collapse the idea that humans are the only ones with agency. So let's talk about that. So if we can accept, it, I don't know if you've accepted it or not, but for the sake of argument, accept that matter might be active, self-creative, productive, or unpredictable, then we are compelled, according to Kuhl and Frost, quote, to think of causation in far more complex terms, right? Instead of thinking about everything is caused by human behaviours and actions. To recognise that phenomena are caught in a multitude of interlocking systems and forces, and to consider anew the location and nature of capacities for agency. I'll read it again. We are compelled to think of causation in far more complex terms, to recognize that phenomena are caught in a multitude of interlocking systems and forces, and to consider anew the location and nature of capacities for agency. Can anyone have a go at interpreting that? Andrew, do you want to have a go? I'll break it down for you part at a time if you want. What do you think they mean by thinking of causation in more complex terms? Well, so instead of saying like, you know, this will have an effect on this. Mm -hmm. it, it's more so that, you know, it may or may not necessarily have an impact. Mm -hmm. Is that how it's seeing it? Kind of. And, like, there may be multiple things that could influence it, not just that's the one thing. Yeah, that's more like it. Yeah. Yeah. So in one of the later chapters of the book, for example, she talks about this massive blackout. I think it was in Baltimore. She's at John Hopkins, so that would make sense. It's in Baltimore. And um, everyone wanted to blame the government officials at the power company or whatever they are. So it's America. It's probably privatised. They wanted to blame the company for the power blackout, right? And we do that all the time. Think about all the natural disasters that we have here. And instead of hopefully not after the weekend, but instead of acting on climate change, for example, we have a Royal Commission and we blame um, the CFA or we blame someone in some political office somewhere, right? It's a very kind of common reaction that we have um, in Western societies where we think about something's gone wrong. We need to hold someone 
to account. And so that's what we do. We find a person or group of people or an office and we hold them to account. What she's saying, Bennett says it, Cool and Frost is saying it, is that actually the cause of something like a massive flood or a bushfire is more complex. It's not that we shouldn't hold people to account when they've done things that they could have done better or they've made big mistakes or they were corrupt, but that if we really want to search for the causes of things, we have to look more broadly than just at that. Um, okay. This means then that power is going to mean something very different from a possession, right? This is most definitely not a commodity approach to power. It's not a thing that you can have. Um, and it's even, it kind of also exceeds the kind of capillary-like understanding of power that Foucault talked about because he was predominantly talking about language and discourse, right? If you added matter to that, you would be getting closer to what power is. Questions, comments? I'm going to ask each of you one by one where you're at, one to ten. Ten being I'm so all over this I could teach it. One being I have no idea what you're saying. Leah? Um, I feel like I get it and then I don't. Like I, I get it and then, you know, we move to the power thing and I'm lost. Okay, um, so between one and ten? <laughs> I don't know, like a four maybe, maybe okay. five? All right, I'm going to add two because you're underestimating yourself. Rachmiel? Um, there's still a lot of questions left to be answered, but I think that it's made more or less made sense so far. Maybe I'd say six. Okay. Yep. Yeah. Gemma? Yeah, I'm also like a six or a seven if I'm being nice to myself. Yeah, be nice to yourself. Why not? Andrew? Maybe about a seven or an eight. Okay. Right. Um, Hamish? Um, yeah, probably a seven or an eight. Okay, cool. Yeah, see, Leah, you're underestimating yourself. Okay, good. I'll take it. That's good. Okay, so let's get on to power then. The reason why I chose Bennett is because she has this specific theory of thing power, right, which fits very nicely with what we're doing. But there are... Um, like we did with Fanon, for example, or Marx, there are many other posthuman theorists who we could read and try and draw out a theory of power. Um, but this one's quite useful because she's just very explicit about it. So the context, so she's a political theorist, right? She's in one of the best departments of political theory in the world, in fact, with William Connolly, who's one of my other just all-time favourite political theorists. Um, so she is trying to bring these discussions about post-humanism into politics, right, and the study of politics, political science, political theory. In the US, they're very um, sharp about the distinction between political theory and political science, but we're less sharp about that here, um, which I think is a good thing. Um, so she's concerned, you know, as she should be, about the state of the world, right? And that's why I asked you to read the preface, because I think in the preface, she actually divulges a lot that helps you understand what's going on in the rest of the book. She divulges her motivation, right, which is to foster and cultivate sensibilities that will make us better political actors, more capable 
of responding effectively to the challenges that we face in the world, right? And this is what good theory should do. This brings us back to week two when we read Taylor. What is the point of theory to help us understand and intervene in the world in better ways, right? And so that's what she's trying to do here. Um, and she does it by talking about sensibilities, right? So she's not talking, she's not doing the kind of political theory that is about rules and laws or institutional design or anything. She's talking about the kind of sensibility that we as human beings and citizens should have um, if we're going to respond effectively to these problems. And she thinks that that sensibility has to be more attentive to the non-human world, right? That's her kind of number one claim in the book. If you take nothing else away from this, you can take that, right? To be clear, though, there are some what she calls performative contradictions. It's like on the one hand we're saying we need to be more attentive to the non-human world, but at the same time we're doing it through language, through writing books for other humans, like the whole thing is a human endeavour. Um, there's kind of no escape from that. She accepts that that is a contradiction, an inescapable contradiction. Um, she also accepts that there for politically strategic reasons, there has to be some emphasis on subjectivity, right? There has to be some emphasis on the human capacity for agency. Otherwise, we will just give up. We will roll over and just give up, right? And that's not what she wants. That's not what any of us want. Um, so very simply, she's calling for a humility, right? A humility as humans to be humble about our place in the world and all the things that it affects and the things that affect it. Her argument is that we see matter as having some vitality. And she defines vitality on page eight of the preface as the capacity of things not only to impede or block the will and designs of humans, as a bushfire does or as a flood does, but also to act as quasi-agents or forces with trajectories, propensities or tendencies of their own. That restlessness, right? You should all have this in your text somewhere, right? So page eight, the vitality for her is the capacity of things she spells out um, her examples in the chapters of her book, edibles, commodities, storms, metals, not only to impede or block the will and design of humans, but also to act as quasi-agents. That's a key word there, quasi-agents or forces with trajectories, propensities or tendencies of their own. So I'm quoting a lot here because not unlike with Foucault, to really draw out all the benefit and the insight of this kind of theory is a matter of sophisticated language and a broad vocabulary with which you can describe something. So terms like a, tra a trajectory or a propensity or a tendency, like these are very subtle and useful terms. So I'm going to give you six key features of her argument Right. These should be pretty clear to you from the reading, but as always, it's useful to cash them out. Am I going too fast? Okay. So number one, she wants us to displace the object 
It's the only way of seeing non-human things. That's why she uses the word thing and not the word object, right? So she's not suggesting that we flip it and see objects. So she's not suggesting, so we typically operate in this subject-object binary, right? We as humans are subjects. We have agency. We have capacities to act on other things. The things that we act on are objects, right? We make the apple move or we push the, you know, trolley around or we act on each other, in which case we objectify each other. Right, so the subject is the one doing the acting and the object is the one being acted upon. She's not suggesting we flip that. She's suggesting we collapse it. And so the, if we stop using the word object and start using the word thing, she does that to try to invoke in our imagination the idea that the book, the table, the trolley are capable of doing stuff. She says um, on page 17 of the preface, thing power, thing hyphen power, is, quote, an alternative to the object as a way of encountering the non-human world. You with me? Okay. The second thing, I've already hinted at this, is that she's very subtle in her account of things. So this subtlety is the second key feature of her theoretical proposition. For example, using the word thing instead of the word object. And I'll give you a few examples. On page three, she refers to um, vitality as that which refuses to dissolve completely into the milieu of human knowledge. And that's a very subtle thing. She's talking here about the idea of the absolute from, I don't know how you say his name, De Vries? You know, she talks about all these different theorists. She says, my idea of the thing and thing power is resonant with these other ideas in the history of political thought, Western political thought. Um, and so she says in relation to his idea of the absolute, that it is that which refuses to dissolve completely into the milieu of human knowledge, right? So she's capturing this kind of subtle, um, she's not really kind of pinning it down. She's evoking it in a way. She says also on page three, I will try impossibly to name the moment of independence from subjectivity possessed by things. All right, so she's saying things matter, right? Things have a moment where they are independent from us as humans. There's something about them that is independent from us. I'm going to try to name that thing. She also acknowledges she can't name that thing because in naming it, she's linking it to her subjectivity. That's why she says it's impossible, but she's going to try anyway because it sort of it evokes something. Um, she says on page nine, she uses the language of actant from Latour and operant from Deleuze instead of agent, right? She says agentic capacity is now seen as differentially distributed across a wider range of ontological types. So there's not a binary of actor or agent and matter, which is dead or incapable of doing anything, but there are different states of mastery and recalcitrance. 
right? So humans might have a particularly high level of mastery. Like I can pick this book up and put it down and the book can't really stop me doing that, right? I have quite a high level of mastery over this book, but I don't have total mastery over it. It has some agentic capacity of its own. Maybe not much, right? But there's something in it. My horse, on the other hand, she has quite a high level of agentic capacity. Right? A worm has less than my horse, but more than the book. A tree has maybe less than the worm, but more than the book. Right? So she's saying when we use language like actant instead of actor and uh, operator, that they're ways of saying that there are things that can do stuff, but they may not be fully, they may not be a full agent in the same sense as a human, or they may not have that kind of full level of agency. So I'll read that complicated quote again. Agentic capacity is now seen when we use this language as differentially distributed across a wider range of ontological types. So it's not just mind and matter. There's a whole bunch of different types of being and they all have different agentic capacities and they're not all distributed in the same way, but they've all got something. Does that make sense? So if she didn't have this kind of subtlety, it would be very hard for her to mount this argument, I think, right? It would be too um, blunt and brutish and we would not be very convinced by it so that subtlety is really important in getting an argument like this off the ground okay the third feature of her argument um, is that she wants to flatten and make horizontal the difference between different types of matter so she wants us to get rid of this hierarchical way of seeing the world human animal other organic matter, inorganic matter. Like we tend to see it in a hierarchy like that. She wants us to collapse that hierarchy and instead see it in a kind of flatter way. Not that we stop differentiating between those different things, they are different. But she's claiming that if we stop seeing them in that hierarchical way, we might see them more clearly. Okay, and then the fourth feature, so she's displaced the object, right? She's replaced the object with a thing, thinking in terms of things rather than objects. She also has to displace the subject. This is the fourth feature, that she displaces and rethinks what subjectivity might mean. She's displacing it from the centre of the way we think about power or the top. So if we think about that hierarchy, human agent, animal, non-animal, inorganic, we've flattened it. We're probably still thinking about ourselves as the center. We need to move ourselves from the center of that as well. It's much more soupy, right? There's more of a mix and a displacement. If we do that, then we can start to look at things that are happening, effects that we see in the world as being related, not necessarily to human agency and intention, but to thing power. 
the blackout, for example, we can stop seeing the company as the sole and central cause of the blackout. They instead become one among many features in the way that blackout unfolded. Couldn't we have done that anyway? Um, by simply acknowledging that, that things are caused, like events are caused by a, comp a complex, a complex confluence of factors. I mean, surely the post-humanists weren't the first to realize that um, uh, like a blackout might be caused both by human error or, um, or a shortage of something or um, a weather event uh, all happening at exactly the same time. Mm -hmm. surely why, do you, why do you think she's made, like, why do you think she's suggesting this? Uh, maybe she wants to formulate into words what people sometimes do without thinking, like if they are more sophisticated than someone who's just going to blame the company. Yep. And she's also trying to shift the emphasis because I think, I think she's right that by and large when we talk about the way we do our politics and, and the way we exercise accountability, it tends to be very human-centred. So even though the report may include an acknowledgement of the weather conditions on the day of the fire, it still um, it tends to the centre of gravity of those explanations is a human one. It still remains a human one. She's saying, yeah, so it, it's a subtle shift of emphasis but with possibly very significant um, effects on the way we do things. For example like we'd probably have acted a lot sooner on climate change if we had had that kind of an emphasis in the way we've examined natural disasters over the last 20 years, for example. I think that would be her response. You can take it or leave it, but I think that's what she would say. No, no, that, that definitely makes sense. Yeah. A lot of political theory is, as you're saying, it's capturing something that's already shifting um, and trying to make it move there faster by articulating it and calling for it more explicitly. Um, so if we, back to this point about displacing and rethinking subjectivity, um, on page 10 um, and 11, I don't know if you remember reading this, where she talks about human bones. Do you remember reading that? Or is this where you're all gonna confess you didn't do the reading? Please don't say that. Oh, no. Hamish, your face just reveals everything. The rest of you have much better poker faces. Andrew, did you read it? I have no poker face. Oh, evidently. <laughs> Andrew, did you read it? No, I didn't, unfortunately. Oy. Leah? You did. Okay. Can you tell us what they said about the bones? Or what Bennett said, I should say. Um, I, she was talking about the minerals that make up human bones and that I mean does she kind of essentially say that we're all made up of minerals because we're all made of, of bones oh no she goes into wait it's coming back to me she goes into like the evolution of bones mm -hmm. whereas before it was other things mm. I don't know muscles or whatever it was mm. and then bones kind of pop up and she was kind of relating that to 
how the minerals and stuff of bones, like the matter of bones, gives us movement. So without that matter, then we wouldn't be able to move. Does that? Yeah. That's exactly right. Yeah. yeah. So we sort of go, oh, we're humans. We think, therefore, we are, et cetera, et cetera. And she goes, actually, a big part of the reason we are what we are can be explained by this very, very like millennia long evolution of um, the matter that constitutes bones, right? And if we think in those kinds of terms, all of a sudden our uniqueness doesn't look so special, right? Um, I'll read you another lighter example from the next chapter so you wouldn't have read it. Um, I will just say you should have done the reading and I am genuinely disappointed that you didn't. Okay, so um, the next chapter is on food right, edible matter and how it interacts with our bodies. In, some in the case of some foods, say potato chips, it seems appropriate to regard the hand's actions as only quasi or semi-intentional, for the chips themselves seem to call forth or provoke and stoke the manual labour of taking the chip, putting it in your mouth. I did this on the weekend twice, two bags of chips. They just, like, it's not 100% in my control whether or not I continue to eat those chips. I insist that every single one of you have also had this experience, right? So she's saying to eat chips is to enter into an assemblage in which the eye is not necessarily the most decisive operator. Chips challenge the idea, implicit in this other thing that she talked about, that what people want is a personal preference entirely of their own making. I did not really want to eat that whole bag of chips I was feeling car sick and I wanted some chips to make me feel a little bit better. But instead I ate the whole bag, right? Hands up if you've also had this experience at any point in your life. Oh, come on, Gemma. What, what, like what, yeah, eating more chips than you really wanted to eat. Oh, yeah, sorry. I just, sorry. I was going to say, if you've got that level of self-control. No, no, but I thought you meant that like really specific. No, no, no. Sorry. the car sickness no you may i get terrible car sickness okay the point is what she's saying is we can laugh about this right but what she's saying is actually there is something notable happening when that happens right we tend to we have a very strong emphasis on in that context um like self-control and willpower right um think about people who are addicted to smoking right it's the same thing they are not the someone who is addicted to smoking they that that person their subjectivity is not the only actant in that assemblage the assemblage of the cigarettes and the smoker right the cigarettes are part of what's going on there and they have some restlessness they have some agentic capacity right if you've ever had a craving or you've done something you kind of didn't want to do you drank a bit too much you ate a bit too much whatever um you stayed in the sun a bit too long all of what she's saying is that we could think about those as assemblages where the other things that we are experiencing are part of what's going on. They have thing power. Does that appeal to you, that idea? It does to me in the context of the chips, for sure. That makes it scary because it means I can't stop with the chips. <laughs> No, that's not what it means. That's not what it means. But what it means is um, if you think that your willpower is the only thing at play 
that's not really true. It doesn't mean you have no willpower. It just means that's not the only thing happening. Right? So one of the consequences of that might be that we might be a bit more compassionate with ourselves when we do eat too many chips. Right? So that's an example of the kind of effects that you might be looking for. It's a really kind of small example. But if we thought about things in this different way, the actions that we would subsequently take might look really quite different from what they look when we have this really human-centric, subject-centric understanding of our experiences in the world, right? Um, oh, sorry. Would, no. would you say another example, like, you know, the use of your phone, for example, like the fact that it's like drawing you in to want to use it in a way? Um, and it's not just, you know, your own willpower to resist using it that time. Correct. In fact, a, a former student of this unit is now doing a PhD on that very using post-human theory. Yeah. Leah? Um, where does the fact that we have, like, with the things, like the, you know, not natural disasters and that kind of thing, but, like, the objects and the chips and the cigarettes, where does it come into the fact that we have made, like we have gone and created cigarettes, which we are now, you know, addicted to? So where does that come into the whole thing? It's a good question. Can you sharpen the question? I guess, is it not? Why would it matter? Well, it does it not come back to our, our own agency to create things that we then become addicted to, I guess. So, yes, the yeah. object, well, the thing has power. Yeah. But we've kind of given it that power because we've created it. Yeah. So I think that's an excellent question. And it comes to this question of, which I think is actually the biggest challenge for Bennett, of accountability. Like how are we supposed to hold cigarette companies accountable for their contribution to, to the problem of, you know, cancer and so on? Mm. Um, or Apple and, at the, you know, social media responsible for the stuff they do that, we know makes us more addicted to the things that happen on our phones. Um, so she would say that like we, that needs to be taken into account. Um, this is a really nice segue to the next point, the fifth point, um, the fifth feature of her theory, which is that all of these things always exist in, in an assemblage. And so our task, if we look, want to look at a problem, for example, of, you know, nicotine addiction or um, is to look at the entire assemblage. And that doesn't mean that we only hold the nicotine responsible. We can still hold the company responsible, but we do so in a kind of more holistic way. It's interesting because this reminds me of uh, a very prominent example of someone who was very, very scared of the power technology had over people, um, Ted Kaczynski, the Unabomber. And he famously, he wrote in his manifesto about how technology was controlling us, the way that we stop at a red light, even when, you know, no one's going to see us, we could go through it anyways. And yet, and he was so scared of technology that he was sending parcel bombs, blowing up science departments or trying to blow up science departments. Um, but in his uh, manifesto, which is actually his PhD, sorry, it was his PhD, I think, he was talking about the sort of power that things have over us that we can't 
we lose control over ourselves. Um, and um, for whatever reason, uh, it got, I think, with the uh, rise of smartphones and the internet, um, some of his theories have gotten a lot more popular for whatever reason. But um, I think that the difference between him and Ben is that he's blaming humans for it um, and she's not necessarily blaming humans. And that's, but um, it looks like that they're both um, uh, concerned by the same thing. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I think that sounds right to me. I didn't know that that was part of his motivation. Um, yeah, I mean, I think, I mean, the other thing, so Hamish, you mentioned earlier like Indigenous um, post-human theories that were post-human theories before post-human theory was a thing. Um, Buddhism is similar, right? Like Buddhism also calls for um, an attention to experience, including material experience. It might be kind of less... Um, theoretically developed than this but it's um, I think there's there's kind of deep resonance and that Buddhist approach would call in the case of screens for example would call for us to be attentive to what is happening to me when I get a message or when like my phone lights up with something just be attentive to that like what happens in my body when that happens and then once you are attentive to that and I think this is Bennett's argument, you're just more equipped to make a decision about what to do next. Right? So it doesn't necessarily change, and you might still answer that message, but if we look at things in a particular way, we have more information and we're more equipped to make more fully informed decisions about what comes next, you know. And it may still involve holding the tobacco company responsible and having a royal commission into the emergency services but in many many cases that would not be the only thing that we would do right does that make sense and so i think you know the unabomber and bennett have gone in opposite directions on that problem he's like let's blow it up she's like hang on we could actually just be more attentive to what's going on and make more responsible and complex responses to it um, so again, this fifth point that we must see things not only on their own, but always in an assemblage of which humans are a part. An assemblage is another Deleuzean idea. There's more about it um, in the second chapter of the book, if you want to keep reading on that idea. Um, but it's quite an important idea, I think, for making, if I could have prescribed you more reading, I would have prescribed that too. But given you didn't even do the reading, I did prescribe. <laughs> I'm not going to give you more. But it, it's quite an important idea, I think, for it makes a lot of kind of queries that you have about thinking about just the table, for example, fall into place by thinking about them in the broader context in which they exist. Okay. And the sixth and final feature of her theory is the importance of a feeling of discomfort, right? And I don't mean discomfort as in D-I-S-C-O-M-F-O-R-T, as in uncomfortable. I mean discomfort as in discomfit, F-I-T. Something is not fitting. You may also be uncomfortable. But this idea of discomfit and the sense that there is a remainder what she calls a remainder that we can't put into words or reconcile. So she places a lot of importance on this idea that there is um, 
we should be cultivating in ourselves an attentiveness to this thing that we can't pin down and we can't fit into our theories. It's that performative paradox I referred to earlier. Once we describe that thing, we've made it into an object. And it's actually some other kind of thing, right? She uses Theodore Adorno's idea of non-identity. You would have read this part. I love this part of this book. Um, on page 14 and on page 15, she talks about the idea that there is something, some remainder, some absolute, some something mystery that we can't pin down. And that as long as we are always attentive to that feeling, then she says on page 15, this will cultivate a respect that chastens our will to mastery. Chastens our will to mastery. It makes us humble. It reminds us we are not in control. We could not have a better reminder of that than the pandemic. Right? We are not in control. Pandemic is a perfect example. Everyone wants to blame pharmaceutical companies, blame Scott Morrison for not ordering the vaccine, et cetera, et cetera. It's not that we shouldn't be pointing to those failures, but there has, there is, I think, in the um, in Australia anyway, much less so, for example, than in Kenya, interestingly, um, a sense that we should have somehow been able to control this virus. Right, And it is a human failure that we didn't. Instead of an acceptance that there are some things, some forms of matter that are beyond us. Right, That's the kind of humility that she's calling for. And if we understood, for example, that it was beyond us, we might just think quite differently about what our goals were and how we were to manage it, how we were to psychologically cope with the reality of it etc etc i really love that term that it, we should be cultivating a respect for this unknown thing that is beyond us that chastens our will to mastery it stops us thinking that we can control everything but so if it's beyond us do we seek to like control it at all or yep like I'm not, I don't think she or anyone else would suggest, oh, let's just roll over and allow it to take us all out. Yeah. But we would have a better yeah. sense of what we can and can't control. So we can make a vaccine and we did and we should have done that. That's good, right? But, for example, China now is still pursuing zero COVID policy. If it adopted this sensibility, it probably wouldn't do that mm. at this point. A really simple example yeah so it's definitely not she's not trying to cultivate an attitude of defeat right or a refusal to hold people to account or to stop blaming people it's more, much more subtle than that she's calling for a more holistic um, apprehension of what's going on right and a lot of it like that kind of little thing she does, the little vignette where she sees this little pile of rubbish, right? A lot of it is about, it's about perception. It's about how we choose to place our attention and how we choose to perceive the world around us. And if we perceive it differently, then all these other things follow, all these kind of more subtle and sophisticated 
political responses to problems that we face. But definitely not that we don't do anything at all. On the contrary, if we looked, for example, at climate change and went, ugh, we're stuffed. Like that is the absolute opposite outcome of what she's trying to achieve with this book. How are you all feeling about this? I just noticed the very uh, political aspect to what she to this. Then um, it's very anti-authoritarian. Um, if an authoritarian says we have all the answers, mm -hmm. uh, we can do it. Uh, perhaps indeed um, the example of China thinking, you know, we, we're going to get rid of it. We can do it. It's our responsibility. Um, and she's saying, no, maybe it's not the responsibility. Maybe it's not in your control. Mm -hmm. um, it allows for a far less totalitarian form of power. Mm. I think that's right. It's quite radically democratic in that sense. But I think you used an interesting word there, the word responsibility. I think she actually, you know, one interpretation would be that this kind of way of seeing things gets us off the hook for taking responsibility. But I actually think it does the opposite, right? Because when we are more attentive to, particularly in the context of climate change, to the natural world, right, and natural, what we might call natural matter, although she, I think she probably wouldn't use the term natural, um, and we see our role, we see ourselves as situated on like a horizontal plateau within that world rather than at the top of a hierarchy where we control that world. It actually enhances our sense of responsibility rather than diminishes it because we go, oh, my God, we're totally enmeshed in this. Gemma, what's that face saying? Oh, I was really cold. I just got like a little body Sorry. <laughs> All right. So fourth part of the lecture, we've got two options. It's 11.20. My preference would be for you guys to discuss this. I can throw a couple problems at you and you can hash them out. You want me to do that? Okay. One problem that, that has been talked about with respect to post-humanism is waste landfills in particular right so there's a an article by herd in 2013 i can send it to you if you want it um she says landfills she conceives of landfills as living natural flows where multitudes of bacteria collaborate with human debris and geological forces in creating assemblages of known unknown and unknowable entities that's how she described landfill. Want me to read it again? Landfills are living natural flows where multitudes of bacteria collaborate with human debris and geological forces in creating assemblages of known, unknown and unknowable entities. For example, we didn't know for a long time the kinds of poisonous gases that get produced as waste um, starts to decompose, right? That's kind of what she... Yeah. So we don't even know what else there is going on in those landfills that we don't know. That's what she means by the unknowable. Discuss.
So, well, what aspects did you want us to look at it? Just like take it from there or? Yep. Use your mind and imagination, which is actually the only part subjectivity and part matter. Yeah. Well, I guess what like that kind of made me think about was like the idea of microplastics mm -hmm. and in terms of like how you know we're consuming microplastics because of you know how waste has interacted with food and like yeah. it's kind of created this cycle um and that's you know created the unknown of like how will it affect the human body like mm -hmm we have more cancer all this type of stuff because you know we use these objects and materials in a certain way and then like when we aren't using them they decompose and eventually you know we eat them, which is I don't know, interesting i guess what's interesting about it um well it was never their intended purpose to be like and like we never knew that that would be the effect um it was always you know they were a way to you know contain food to keep it fresh or you know hold various different things in certain ways um and could be used for like various different things plastics in pretty much everything um so now it's you know in even more things than we knew before so what would a post-human perspective like bennett's give us in thinking about that i guess is that what thing power is is that like we do all these things as humans trying to fix all these problems, but then there's all these unintended consequences that we don't foresee. And then we have, then we have, we're affected by those things. So like, you know, I was thinking about toads, like introducing toads to get rid of whatever they were supposed to get rid of. And now we have a toad problem. Yeah. Um, and so I guess that's thing power in a way, because it's the power of the, the thing that we we wanted them to you know we wanted it to fix this problem which maybe it does but then it makes this other problem that we didn't see so then we have to respond to that and so we're just constantly responding to problems that we thought we solved and then there's those other problems coming up mm -hmm. if we thought more like bennett wanted us to do you think that would be different I don't know. I don't know if we can ever foresee what the impact is going to be on off the things that we do. So I don't know. I guess if we were more aware of, more aware that what we do has unintended consequences. I just, yeah, I don't know if we can ever know what's going to happen. So I guess we just have to accept that. What do other people think? I think that 
Um, Bennett wants us to sort of look at things in the same way we traditionally look at people. So in, in, in that sense, it's not like, um, it's not as much about how we try to fix something that's unintended consequences, but rather thinking that um, those things in themselves have their own sort of lives and they will do unexpected things just like a human would. So if we think of that, like, it's not so much an unintended consequence as it is a response from something else which has some form of agency. It may respond in any of uh, a thousand possible ways, much like a human would. Um, in fact, it's, I would say that it's not like it's trying to take, she's trying to take away free choice from humans she's trying to impute free choice into objects so at first i was thinking that there's sort of a almost a predeterminism argument going on and then i realized it's not at all actually it's a free choice argument i, I know it's very vulgar terms free choice and predeterminism very medieval but um but they express the point i suppose um that it's sort of speaking about uh, free choice in um in uh in in objects as it were and that's yeah. the agency. That's the life of, of the of the thing. Yeah. I suppose. What about if I put it to you this way? Think about your thesis topic. Right. You've all got your thesis topic in mind. What are some of the material things that you have not thought about that pertain to your thesis topic? Write me a list. Give me five material things. Gemma, yours is easy. Yeah, so easy. I don't know. I just my first thought was the peripherals that games and esports have played on. Yep. Exactly. That's my first thought. And yep. perhaps that soft power and tourism is kind of soft power. Yep. 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 Those are like the obvious ones. Yep. Yep. Computers, yeah, hardware, equipment. Yep. Hamish, what about yours? My thesis is a discourse analysis. Yeah, exactly. So it's exactly my point. Discourse analysis of what? Of um, healthcare materials. Healthcare what? Health, like healthcare promotion materials. Um, you just use the word material? Yeah, but they're... Yeah, you did. They are material. What material forms do they take? They're all digital. You think that's not a material form? It is, yeah. Yeah. So what is involved in getting them distributed? What do um, people have to have? A computer oh. or a phone. All these are material things that are part of the discourse that you're analysing. So if you thought about those kinds of things, would that change the way you see your problem? Added probably add a few thousand words to my thesis. <laughs> I think you could change it radically. The difference between the material pamphlets of you know, the AIDS pandemic of the 80s and the 90s, as opposed to getting something on your mobile phone privately and personally, like the materiality of that is potentially hugely significant. In the 80s, when 
AIDS, HIV AIDS was really stigmatized. It was associated with men who have sex with men, you know, and then you're handing around physical pamphlets to people. That's quite different to being able to discreetly deliver people information on their personal mobile phone, right? The materiality of those things makes a massive difference to the nature of the public health campaign, what's possible, what's not possible, right? That's literally off the top of my head in one minute. So my point is that when you think about the material features of the problems that you're looking at, you probably haven't thought about them before. You're like, oh, I'm only doing discourse analysis. Discourse doesn't have any material stuff in it. But it does. It absolutely does. It cannot be otherwise. And so I'm not suggesting you go down this path, but if you wanted to, you would find something there. All of you would. Right? So I think about it, for example, um, in my, the book I'm writing on the way the Kenyan state classifies its citizens by ethnicity in Kenya, because there is a big digital divide, um, there's problems with literacy, there's no postal service. Many people don't um, live in like a house. They live in other different kinds of setups. Um, the census is done with an enumerator. An enumerator goes around to everyone's house and interviews them. That has a massive impact on the kinds of data that is collected, depending on who's doing the interview, right? And that's all to do with the materiality of housing, among other things. Right, so when you start paying attention to these things, you just see all these like explanatory factors and all these other possibilities for how things might be done better or differently that you just didn't see before. It's quite eye-opening. Um, Rachmiel, you said you really enjoyed um, Timothy Mitchell's piece on the mosquito. Yes, I Can you I talk to us about much. that? Oh, so... Um... It's just that um, there was so much, basically, in, in the material world, there's so much going on. And then the, um, the decisions that are made, right, without, uh, like, trying to deal with problems um, uh, using other forms of material, um, there was specifically, for example, the case could of I, the dam. Could I just interrupt you for one moment? For the benefit of those who didn't read it, could you just give us a quick summary of what it's about? Okay. So it's about how, uh, amongst other things, how a uh, confluence of various uh, events around, uh, mostly around World War II, but not just, um, caused um, a sort of uh, a certain type of mosquito with a certain type of very... Uh, a virulent uh, malaria to enter into Egypt from uh, when previously it was unknown. It was in other parts of Africa only. Um, and it came, I suppose, as a sort of unintended consequence of the building of the dams and all that uh, that goes on. But he actually analyzes every aspect. He analyzes a bit about the war. He analyzes the, how they dealt with the malaria and, and, and the mosquitoes and trying to get rid of mosquitoes to get rid of malaria. He talks about the building of the dam. He talks about um, monopolistic practices and he ties it all together there that all the these events that were considered like the the the, the pandemic the war the um, monopolization of land was always focused on the human actors but it didn't focus on all of these material things but uh, i think one of the things that i particularly enjoyed was that um that he said that the engineer didn't come uh, uh 
with the knowledge to create uh, the dam. It was the creating of the dam that created the knowledge. And thus, when there was a problem with the dam, they then had to come up with solutions to fix it. And that generated the knowledge rather than them coming with their knowledge to fix the dam, um, which is very interesting in its own, in, in its own way. Um, it means that the uh, things even have... Uh, uh, knowledge power, I suppose, if, if, to quote Foucault, the knowledge slash power thing. Um, um, it, you really begin to see the. It's in that reading that you begin to see um, uh, uh, um, the thing power. Uh, in my opinion, more so than the Bennett reading, which yeah, is a, I think very dense, uh, very very dense. But you could, it sort of, it, it, it the thing speaks for itself, I suppose, yeah. in the in the mosquitoes reading. Um, yeah, but but I think that the really the biggest thing that resonated with me was exactly that point about the um, the engineer gets the knowledge from what they're doing, not they don't bring the knowledge to the thing, um, um, which was also reflected in the fact that how they dealt with the mosquitoes as well, um, yeah. and the uh, the misguided attempts to wage war against them in a very human way. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It is a fantastic read. Like it, he's a, Mitchell is just a beautiful writer. This is the same Timothy Mitchell who wrote that piece um, that I talked to you about in week two, the work of economics, how economics makes its world. Do you remember we talked about that study of the um, privatization of land rights in the slum and how it came to be used by the World Bank, etc. It's the same Timothy Mitchell, and it's from this book, The Rule of Experts: Egypt, Technopolitics, Modernity. Right. And he's a sort of he's also one of these kind of discipline crossing people. But um, he, he's sort of like a historian, anthropologist. It's largely a story like he largely tells a story. He, he's an exceptional writer in the sense like I aspire to write like him, but I think I'm a long way away from it. Um, he shows throughout the whole chapter. And so his his explicit use of theory is limited to the last three pages. And by then he's shown you what he means. And so when he tells you, you're just so convinced, right? Because he's already illustrated it. So the point that Rachmiel is making, I'll read to you how um, Mitchell puts it on page 52. He says, um, so yeah, he's talking about all of these efforts to sort of, to modernize Egypt effectively, which involved controlling malaria, controlling the mosquito, um, uh, acquiring large swathes of land for monocrop production, particularly of sugar and also of cotton, which he doesn't talk about as much here, um, as opposed to it being kind of held by small holders who grew food for subsistence. Um, this is also a period of um, colonialism in Egypt. The British wasn't a formal colony. It was a protectorate kind of a thing, a condominium. But it, the British had a large, um, they had effective control um, over the territory and what he's talking about is he's trying in this book as a whole to use the material world to help explain the rise of colonial forms of power which he calls techno power right because it was exercised particularly through the um the rollout of experts agricultural experts engineers medical experts etc all from America, well, first from Britain and then later after the war from America. And he's saying, we've always talked about this in terms of like geopolitics and the rise of empire. He's saying there's actually another explanation and it gets to a kind of much more micro form of power. And that is this, as Rachmiel put really nicely, the confluence of a particular series of material factors 
including the mosquito, the deet they use to kill it and all this other stuff, right? And that's what he kind of explains through the chapter. And then he concludes, he says, expertise did not confront such resistance externally after it was already complete, nor did the power of capital. Right, so he's talking when he says he's talking about experts like engineering experts who had difficulty, that difficulty with um, cracks in the wall of the dam, which is a form of what he's calling resistance. Expertise did not confront such resistance externally after it was already complete. So, as Rachmil was saying, the experts didn't come with all the knowledge and then confront this thing. The knowledge arose, and the knowledge arose as a result of the cracks developing and they're having to find solutions. As the knowledge arose, so did their status as experts, right? Um, plans, intentions, scientific expertise, techno power and surplus value were created in combination with these other forces or elements. The technology of dam construction was formed at the construction site in Aswan and in earlier and subsequent projects, like this cultivation of expertise is kind of constant project the methods of mosquito eradication developed in brazil and egypt with the outcome of working with anopheles gambii which is a particular breed in particular locations among a new population of human hosts what is called nature or the material world moves like the plasmodium the thing that causes malaria in and out of human forms or it occurs as arrangements like the River Nile that are social as well as natural, technical as well as material. The world out of which technopolitics emerged was an unresolved and prior combination of reason, force, imagination and resources. Ideas and technology did not precede this mixture as pure forms of thought brought to bear upon the messy world of reality they emerged from the mixture and were manufactured in the processes themselves, right? So these particular kinds of people, these scientists, they, they called them extension workers, agricultural extension workers, you know, public health experts, etc. They were part of the apparatus that combined with capitalism in ways he talks about in the chapter and with kind of colonial forms of power, including neo-colonial forms of power, like from America, they were all formed, he's saying, they emerged out of this combination of human and material. I think there's also an, an interesting subtext to it as well. Um, the uh, billionaire guy, I think his name was Abud, when he realised that um, because of the dam, now the there was a loss of the um, natural fertilisation of the land, um, and so they needed to use nitrate. So then his idea was to electrify the dam, to power a factory, to create the nitrate, to refertilize it, um, arose from, again, reusing the Nile to do what it traditionally did, but with his own idea. And I, I suppose what, what, what occurred to me is that... Um, had the Nile not been the object that um, fertilized, or the thing, sorry, I should say, that fertilized the land in the first place, would he have come up with the idea to use the Nile to create a factory to refertilize the land as well? And that's sort of the influence that the, the, the Nile, the idea of the, th the thing power, the knowledge power of mm -hmm. the Nile had on him. Um, mm -hmm. Because 
Yeah, because otherwise maybe he would have thought, oh, I don't know, let's make a coal uh, fired plant to refertilize. Um, mm. But were it not for the fact for the Nile itself being the 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 tool of fertilization. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. It's exactly yeah. It's a great example. Um, I just want to read you another because um, he, he goes on to sort of talk about how it's not just this particular example, but social theory in general and political theory in general that have tended to overlook these things. He says, resolving these processes into reason versus force, right, so human reason versus the force of nature, intelligence versus nature or the imagined versus the real misapprehends the complexity. But this misapprehension was necessary, right? We had to believe that there was such a thing as reason and expertise that could overcome the realities of the natural world, the realities of the Nile, for it was exactly how the production of techno power proceeded, right? If those experts and the governments that backed them were to take a post-humanist approach, right, they would be forced to be much more humble about the expertise they could offer and about their capacities to control the situation. Overlooking the mixed way things happen, indeed producing the effect of neatly separate realms of reason and the real world, ideas and their objects, human and non-human, was how power was coming to work in Egypt and in the 20th century in general. It's one of the neatest segues to a like, that's a real mic drop moment in theory us nerds get excited about those kinds of moments, right? He spent this whole chapter illustrating and then he's like, this is how power works, right? Our understanding of power, we've got a lot from Foucault and blah, 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 but actually we've overlooked a lot. And once we start, as Bennett says, drawing our attention to the material world, we can see power much more clearly. And in Mitchell's case, in ways that allow us to be more comprehensively critical of capitalism and colonialism. find that quite compelling it's interesting because the uh, same um the same critique it, it equally applies to both capitalism and communism yes both based on human planning in yeah. one way or another um marx's problem uh, sorry foucault's problem with marx if you recall is the idea that communists had or marx is that there was no power in their own camp yeah he's saying this mitchell's making the same point same, different, same, same, but different point. Yeah. Other questions, comments, points of confusion or concern? Um, well, I just, I guess, just going back to what you said before, like in terms of asking us questions on our thesis and how it relates to like materiality. My my thesis is Oh no. Gonna be amazing. Is that where we were going with that sentence, do you think? Andrew, we lost you at a pivotal moment. Come back. Oh dear. He's totally gone. All right, we'll wait for him to come back. In the meantime, we finish by reading your story. Gemma, 
you get a paper version in the interest of materiality. Yes. And if you recall, I did say to you all at the start of trimester that you need to print because the way in which we read is different on screen compared to printing. We've lost Andrew all together now. All right, I'm going to read you The Cares of a Family Man, which is the Kafka story that Bennett talks about. Um, okay, it's very short. Some say the word Odredek is of Slavonic origin and try to account for it on that basis. Others again believe it to be of German origin, only influenced by Slavonic. The uncertainty of both interpretations allows one to assume with justice that neither is accurate, especially as neither of them provides an intelligent meaning of the word. No one, of course, would occupy himself with such studies if there were not a creature called Odredek. At first glance, it looks like a flat star-shaped spool for thread, and indeed it does seem to have thread wound upon it to be sure they are only old broken off bits of thread knotted and tangled together of the most varied sorts and colours. But it is not only a spool, for a small wooden crossbar sticks out of the middle of the star and another small rod is joined to that at a right angle. By means of this latter rod on one side and one of the points of the star on the other, the whole thing can stand upright as if on two legs. One is tempted to believe that the creature once had some sort of intelligible shape and is now only a broken down remnant. Yet this does not seem to be the case. At least there is no sign of it. Nowhere is there an unfinished or unbroken surface to suggest anything of the kind. The whole thing looks senseless enough, but in its own way, perfectly finished. In any case, closer scrutiny is impossible since Odredek is extraordinarily nimble and can never be laid hold of. He lurks by turns in the garret, the stairway, the lobbies, the entrance hall. Often for months on end, he is not to be seen. Then he has presumably moved into other houses. But he always comes faithfully back to our house again. Many a time when you go out of the door and he happens just to be leaning directly beneath you against the banisters, you feel inclined to speak to him. Of course, you put no difficult questions to him. You treat him. He's so diminutive that you cannot help it, rather like a child. Well, what's your name, you ask him. Odredek, he says. And where do you live? No fixed abode, he says and laughs, but it is only the kind of laughter that has no lungs behind it. It sounds rather like the rustling of fallen leaves, and that is usually the end of the conversation. Even these answers are not always forthcoming. Often he stays mute for a long time, as wooden as his appearance. I ask myself, to no purpose, what is likely to happen to him? Can he possibly die? Anything that dies has had some kind of aim in life, some kind of activity which has worn out. But that does not apply to Odredek. Am I to suppose then that he will always be rolling down the stairs with ends of thread trailing after him right before the feet of my children and my children's children? He does no harm to anyone that one can see, but the idea that he is likely to survive me, I find almost painful. End of the story. So Bennett talks about this in the chapter as a way of sort of evoking that idea of there being that remainder, right? Like that thing that we can't quite pin down. But sometimes 
what we think of as objects might be things. There might be some liveliness or restlessness to them. And I quite like that bizarre story. It kind of evokes that sensibility that I think she's trying to cultivate in us and a kind of attentiveness and are willing to be a little bit enchanted by things um, and all the political possibilities that that might give rise to. And I think that is a very nice way to end the unit. So that's it. We are done. Very nice work for hanging in there until the end. Um, let me know if you have run into any issues with your essays or anything like that. Um, oh, Andrew. <laughs> I'm I sorry we lost you, Andrew. You said, my, my thesis is, <laughs> and then you, yeah, and you missed out. I just read the Audra Deck story, um, which was really lovely, but you can find it online and read it. Did you want to finish your thought? Um, I kind of forgot where I was going with it. Okay, that's good, because we have to get out of the room. <laughs> but if you, yeah, it's just that sensibility. You were thinking about some materiality that might be of relevance to your thesis topic but keep pondering that it's good even if you don't end up writing about it I think it it expands the way you think about stuff and I think that can only be a good thing all right thanks everyone I'll see you around the traps thank yeah. you thank you thank you bye, bye.